Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, July 27th, 2022, and today we're going to be answering three questions we've heard from international educators over the last week. And as we do each week, we take our three uh, questions from news stories that have appeared over the last few days, and we put those out in a newsletter form on Monday mornings uh, in uh two different ways, uh, either through our website where you can subscribe, and I'll be dropping the links to our website in the chat. Uh, that's smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. You enter your details there. You can get that delivered to your inbox every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, if you prefer LinkedIn as a way to digest your news content for international education, I'll be dropping a link to the most recent edition of the newsletter uh, through our LinkedIn profile. Uh, we, where you can subscribe to that newsletter and get that in your feed every Monday as well. So those th three news stories or uh, th themes that we cover each week in question form here on Wednesday come also from, that, from those news stories uh, that you get on Monday morning. So each week you can probably guess through some of the uh, concentrated news uh, where we might be focusing our attention each Wednesday for the roundup. So let's get right into it. Uh, first question of the week is, is Bangladesh a country to watch for students, international students? We've been hearing a lot uh, in the last uh, few months about uh, how Bangladesh is, uh, there's some challenges in Bangladesh, but some real strength and opportunities for, uh, for United States institutions that might be looking to recruit there. It's the next uh, big giant coming out of South Asia. Um, not going to have a rival India in terms of volume, but certainly as a uh, solid market, there are certainly signs of life there. Uh, Bangladesh, uh, Bang in the U.S., Bangladeshi students have uh, risen uh, into the top 20 destinations, uh, sources of, country, uh, of international students for the United States. Uh, they've steadily risen over the last uh, dozen years or so. Uh, some of the data from the most recent article that I'll be pu pushing out uh, in the feed is will have the details of that. But why uh, is Bangladesh uh, suddenly on the radar? I think part of it has to do with some past challenges in the market, frankly, and those that have been subscribing to the newsletter for a while will have remembered uh, stories earlier in the, the spring where there was a group of, uh, a, a very large group of Bangladeshi students that uh, got v F1 visas, came to the United States, and basically transferred out or disappeared uh, without uh, ever enrolling. Uh, and that posed some significant uh, concerns. Uh, DHS got involved. It, for the first time I've ever ever seen, uh, called all the all these Washington schools that were uh, some of the initial destinations for these students together uh, to a virtual meeting and said, "Hey, this can't happen. We, here's what we got to do to put some uh, stop gaps in place to prevent this from happening again." Uh, and that's uh, that's been a real a message that hopefully has been taken on board by the institutions. Uh, there is a lot of potential fraud in the Bangladeshi market. Uh, uh, visa denial rates have increased since then. But uh, what I will say is uh, the embassy uh, in, in Dhaka has been uh, very much um, realizing that they need to be a little bit more proactive since then. Uh, and have taken a page from their colleagues uh, to the west in India. Uh, U.S. Embassy folks there at the various consulates have been doing an incredible job over recent recent weeks and months in getting out there on the PR front and sh uh, sharing how they are making 
the U.S. Uh, visa process uh, more streamlined, opening more, posi more positions, freeing up spaces that uh, had been taken up in past by repeats uh, uh, by students that kept getting denied, uh, kept on applying for visa appointments. Uh, th those those uh, folks have been put on deferments uh, for a certain length of time and freeing up spots for new, uh, new, uh, newly. Uh, uh, new international students from or new Indian students are looking to go abroad, so uh, they have. Uh, embassy in Bangladesh has been doing a lot more in that res in that respect. Uh, they actually uh, have been uh, seen a number of articles over the last week or two, uh, showing how they're trying to copy a page from the Indian consulates, uh, U.S. consulates in India, uh, in terms of doing uh, kind of student visa days. Uh, they've recently held a Super Friday, and obviously in Bangladesh, it's one uh, em the embassy in Dhaka, and I don't know if, if they have consulates doing that as well in Chittagong uh, or not. But certainly, um, if there is one, I'm not sure if there's a consulate in Chittagong. But anyway, uh, they have done a visa day uh, on what they call a Super Friday to help meet the huge demand for student visa interviews. So they're doing a lot to promote. Yes, they realize there's huge demand and they're trying to do something about it. They mentioned at the top of the article that the number of Bangladeshi students in the United States has tripled, it almost tripled in the last 10 years. So that's a, a positive sign uh, generating uh, kind of renewed hope uh, that the, this is a market that may, uh, cons may be a consistent a consistent one for years to come for U.S. institutions. So uh, the uh, U.S. Embassy Consul General uh, in Dhaka has said that they are prioritizing student visas, then they need to be saying that. they It's kind of been uh, kind of unwritten rules that student visas are prioritized, particularly in the summer months leading up to the uh, start of the academic year in August, September. So uh, they had a Another, they've had one Super Friday uh, at the earlier in July, and they're going to do another one uh, this coming Friday on uh, July 29th. That's again part of the U.S. Embassy campaign to allow the embassy to meet the high demand for such visas. So uh, the U.S. Embassy in Dhaka has really realized uh, that. Uh, they had needed to resume regular consular services, make sure they were fully staffed, uh, and uh, they are now designating specific Fridays just for student visa interviews. So it's again way, a way to demonstrate that interest uh, to the Bangladeshi student audience and their parents, obviously. Uh, so it goes into some of the details on uh, uh, international students in the United States and Bangladeshi students in the last decade. And there are currently, as of uh, most recent Open Doors, over 8,500 Bangladeshis enrolled uh, in 2021. That's the 14th uh, 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 top sent one of the top four, the fourteenth top sending country to the U.S. Uh, up for three places from seventeenth uh, in the last year or two. So there's some really uh, interesting interesting uh, tidbits in the article that really uh, sh shares the embassy's uh, desire to make uh, the um, make the process smoother. I think what is going to be if uh, you're experiencing high growth in applications from Bangladesh, you may be very concerned about uh, yield uh, from I-20 stage to enrolled stage, and this should give you some hope. But uh, really, in, in these circumstances, um, what I strongly recommend is if you haven't, if you've gotten, if you've had Bangladeshi numbers for 
for a while it might be less of an issue but in terms of success rates uh, but certainly if you uh, are seeing and this is part of what uh, managing your uh, your applications that come in if you're seeing students coming from through particular agencies that aren't getting visas or are getting routinely denied or routinely transfer out if they do get visas to come these are the ones that you need to pay attention to and maybe uh, uh, either make some hard and fast rules with them that that's not that can't happen in future or drop them entirely but this is something that you certainly need to be focused on as an issue because uh, the Washington colleges and universities that got uh, called onto the to carpets uh, earlier in the year certainly would agree uh, that there needs to be better screening uh, that uh, there are uh, substantial fraud uh, that goes on and it really comes down to how are these students being vetted before they come to you. Uh, they just if they're applying solo uh, without any help either from Education USA or from agents that are reputable in the market that are ARC accredited uh, or certified. These are the things that you, you should be uh, paying particular attention to. Uh, that uh, you want to make sure that you're you're covering yourself in a lot of respects and. I know there are some institutions uh, I've worked at, others that I've known, the people who run the International Missions Office as well, that would require applicants in certain markets where there's high fraud or high visa denial rates, uh, requiring them, their students, to go through Education USA offices in country, particularly for that visa prep, before they, uh, be before that you will make decisions on their applications, because it's it's really a point of. Uh, clarity that you need to get to. Um, we've had uh, at a school I'm working with now, uh, they, we've had, had it arranged, cause of, particularly because of the fear of denial that uh, a particular agency is saying, well, why don't we have uh, students pay uh, a first semester tuition deposit? Because um, we don't, at that particular, this particular school, we don't require any deposits for international students to, to get their I-20s. So uh, that was a, a path we went down to see if that would help improve a student's, that student's chance of qualifying for a visa uh, to come to the United States. We'll see if they make it here. But uh, that was certainly something we built in to help adjust, uh, make, make the process a little bit smoother for that particular student. And maybe that's a rule. Uh, back in the early mid to mid-90s, working at an institution that uh, where they saw periods of uh, high visa denial rates or uh, for students from particular countries, they would institute a, a, a tuition deposit uh, that was a full semester tuition deposit before they would issue an I-20 as a way to document these are serious students because that's the concern for a lot of these, for the consulates in these countries, uh, is that they, they're afraid these students are going to get visas and then disappear into the woodwork like these, this group of Bangladeshi students did earlier this year. So nobody wants to get caught in that mix uh, or run afoul of DHS in that respect and get blackballed. Uh, certainly it impacts the, the consular folks, but in Bangladesh in particular, it certainly seems like they're being on the front foot on this part uh, to really uh, focus on um, being student-focused in their visa visa scheduling, and uh, and that's that's certainly a positive sign. But there's always always more that we can do on the institutional end to help make sure that the students we're putting through are uh, on the up and up, that they're fully vetted, that they're properly advised on the ground in country and by you, uh, in terms of what uh, what steps to take in the process. So that's uh, it's a positive first story uh, out of the gate. That uh, Bangladesh is certainly one uh, that I would be keeping my eyes on as an international admissions. Uh, experts. Uh, certainly it is a, 
is a country that will continue to receive um, and, uh, substantial attention from U.S. colleges and increasingly from a broader range of colleges. So we'll, we'll certainly see uh, that, uh, that market, uh, I think, continue to grow in terms of uh, interest in the United States. There's a lot, there's a lot of push factors uh, for those that are uh, coming out of uh, Bangladesh to, uh, to go abroad, and certainly we're seeing uh, we're the recipients of a, a good percentage of them who are hoping to find better opportunities outside their home country. Another market, perhaps on the other end of the scale, uh, the number one uh, source market for uh, U.S. Uh, for international students in the United States, and that's China. And it's a market that has uh, gone through several evolutions over the years. Uh, it uh, had been largely a graduate market in the 90s and early 2000s, transitioned very, very quickly from uh, to a more undergraduate-focused market to a point in maybe 2012, 2013, where it was about even between undergraduate and graduate Chinese students in the United States. Uh, grad undergraduates have cer uh, certainly surpassed uh, the graduate numbers, but we're, we've seen a drop in the undergraduate uh, over recent years, and certainly the pandemic has dropped it very significantly. Uh, and not, not necessarily has... There's been some dampening of interest in, in the United States in China, uh, but there's also been uh, kind of a plateau that's coming uh, of um, available college-age uh, graduate college-age students that might be interested and available to come to the United States. There are other markets that have increased their market share. Seen the UK uh, benefit dramatically from uh, increased interest from China and significant numbers from China. Over 30 to 40 percent of uh, international students on college campuses in the UK, university campuses, are from China now. Uh, so that's their number one source. It's our number one source. It's Australia's number one source. Uh, New Zealand as well. Uh, Canada is it's number two after uh, after India. But it is certainly the behemoth, 800-pound gorilla in the room in terms of uh, uh, markets, uh, student markets out there. And there, yes, there is inevitably going to be a drop-off, and there was a drop-off starting probably in 2015 for many U.S. colleges that had been seeing kind of the gravy train of undergraduate Chinese students kind of peak around that time and then uh, begin to drop off. Uh, there's, again, I said, increased competition now for those same students. But we're also at a point where we came out of the Trump administration into the pandemic, where there was depressed interest and inability to come to the United States since the pandemic. Uh, even now, the travel restrictions are just beginning to break up a little bit. That would allow, hopefully, a larger group of Chinese uh, students to come to the United States in the fall. And that's still, still the hope of many colleges. Uh, but what I have seen is a number of, uh, number of individuals, perhaps, uh, perhaps not the day-to-day the -day, uh, international admission folks, but senior leadership at some campuses uh, begin to question whether China is still a relevant market. And I, I, ha I have to control myself when I get, hear that kind of a, uh, kind of an ad a response or question uh, that when you look at it, uh, for the, this particular institution I'm talking about, it's the number one uh, source of students uh, for that institution. And it would be incredibly short-sighted for an institution to say, if in that particular situation where China is your number one market for international students, that yes, that it's a little bit harder. There's more issues involved uh, with, with, with political tensions and that type of thing. Uh, other issues in terms of travel getting out. Uh, but is that a reason to, uh, to abandon 
the number one market for your institution and for most of the Western world that brings in international students, it's their number one market. Is abandoning, turning away from China ever a good idea? Certainly you might not be 100% all in and this is where we're going to focus all our eggs in our international recruitment basket. You never want to be in that situation and I certainly would, would encourage anyone who's, go, who's going down that route to quickly about face and, and balance out and be a little bit more uh, proactive in terms of diversifying where you're recruiting. But you never want to turn away from your number one uh, goal. Uh, our number one source of international students. Uh, that, that's uh, the only situation where that would ever occur is if we go to war with China. Uh, and that uh, maybe there are potential possibilities of that happening down the road with over Taiwan perhaps. But you see, uh, and the only time that's ever really happened in terms of completely shutting off a, a valve of students was in uh, in 1980 when the, uh, with the Iranian hostage crisis. Uh, Iranian students were the number one, uh, source, number one uh, international student group in the United States in, that, in 1980. And when the hostage takeover happened, uh, the revolution happened in Iran, and the hardline, uh, uh, hardline ayatollahs came on board, that changed everything for that country. Uh, we still don't have an embassy in, uh, in Iran since that time. So it's been 42 years, and we still don't have an embassy again there. So uh, that is the, the very rare circumstance. And that would be the only situation if we were at war with China that I could see the Chinese student market be cut drying up completely. But for it to go the way, for China to go the way of Iran in terms of international student interest at this point, it's very hard to imagine such a situation happening. And certainly I'm not advocating putting all, all of your recruitment eggs in the China basket because that's foolish. But it is, if it's your number one market now, to completely abandon it or to not invest to maintain it uh, is, uh, and keep up with the changes that are going on there is certainly uh, a direction I would never advocate uh, at, for any institution I'm, I'm consulting with. That to ignore your number one markets is, is, an, is a fool's errand, frankly. And I would certainly recommend that that should never be your strategy. What, uh, in terms of articles that we're referencing today, uh, we talk about um, the changes that are going on in China, uh, and you see what's happened during the pandemic uh, with China's over the, what most will call in the West an over-the-top reaction to a zero to having a zero-tolerance policy to COVID, when most Western nations have recognized, hey, COVID's a reality of life. It's endemic at this point. If we have cases, we're dealing with much more virulent streams, but much less. Uh, damaging streams in terms of long-term impacts of them on the majority of populations. So to go full full lockdown when you have a few cases is uh, is just not a practical reality for most most in the West. But China has kept on that on that uh, stance and the. Uh, the situation in Shanghai in the earlier spring uh, where they were on lockdown for two months or longer uh, ha had significant repercussions for uh, for the international school community that lost all their teachers who were forced to evacuate, for international students that were trying to get back into the country to continue their schooling or kept out. Uh, universities certainly uh, are still trying trying to get international students back in and only slight cracks in those doors are opening to allow that to happen. So China's really hurt themselves as a destination, but they've also, in their over-the-top reaction to COVID, have certainly 
shown and over and over the top lockdowns and such have uh, forced a lot of students to start uh, thinking, well, maybe I don't want to stay in country for university and I do want to go abroad. Uh, and making late decisions that, uh, well, they, only, they hadn't taken any uh, English proficiency tests yet, maybe only are planning to take the cow cow, and, and then maybe that's the time this summer where they decided, well, we want, we want to look, out, look elsewhere because I uh, don't know if staying in China is the best option at this point. So there's a lot of moving parts in any, as, as there are with any country, but with China in particular, um, there's, there's an article from Inside Higher Ed in the past week that talks about a, a new mindset for recruiting Chinese students is needed because of uh, the pandemic lockdowns have strained family budgets, time uh, for colleges to uh, develop more inclusive strategies for recruiting and admitting uh, Chinese students. Uh, this is an approach uh, from Amherst uh, College that has uh, uh, looked, at the, looked at the changes they've uh, seen in the family landscape and in terms of funding uh, that uh, they, uh, that the, the uh, stack, uh, the, one of the results from their survey of uh, parents, uh, particularly they're looking at undergraduate in, incoming undergraduates, they said a staggering 90% of parents indicated they will be the primary source of funding for their children's education in the U.S. Uh, so uh, there is um, certainly with the increased pressures from the pandemic and the lockdowns that the, you have family incomes have dropped uh, depending on, uh, on the, the, the parents' jobs and that you really see that uh, that the, the impression that the family survey seems to seems to indicate is that um, and I'll, this is a quote from the article, most Chinese families are under the impression that if their children apply for financial aid at U.S. colleges, their chances of admission will be greatly reduced. Uh, their concern is not unfounded as there are only seven colleges in the U.S. that adopted need-blind policies for both domestic and international applicants. So Amherst happens to be one of those. But uh, the uh, for those that are truly keeping their doors open in terms of how you talk about your institution uh, by offering financial assistance in the form of, mostly most institutions would be in the form of merit aid, uh, that you make it clear that uh, that process is uh, separate from uh, admissions uh, scholarship process. It may be connected to the admissions decision, but not. Uh, it's not going to determine whether you're admitted or not. Uh, uh, certainly, if you, it'll, be, it'll affect whether you can get an I-20 if you've got enough funding to, to come. But uh, that's something that they take a, take that approach from from China. So it's uh, so that that's a particular concern of Chinese families at this point. So it's it's important, I think, to to really uh, take a look at where you're coming from uh, in how you approach the Chinese market. And certainly, you never want to be abandoning it, uh, particularly if you're looking for the undergraduate Chinese market. There's still plenty of interest in the United States, but uh, it, it's not going to be as it is in a lot of countries. It's not going to be as easy because it's a there are more uh, co more countries uh, institutions that are going after these same students. So you'll you will have to work a bit harder and change the way you do things a little bit because you can't let the same policies that you had in place five, ten years ago be what drives your recruitment strategies today uh, because countries change and how you reach students in particular countries will change over time and what messages they will want to hear change over time. So you need to be adaptable in terms of your messaging, in terms of your policies, and in terms of uh, how you approach different markets and what tools you use to access certain markets. So very important to uh, question that seems a little bit uh, 
uh, silly on, on surface is uh, can you ever turn away from the Chinese market? Of course not. Uh, but the reality is some, some institutions are and how you deal with that is certainly one that uh, we want to pay attention to as we, uh, as, we, as we move forward and develop plans for the next recruitment cycle. So now in terms of strategies, this is our third question of the day. How do you define your international recruitment strategy? Uh, this is particularly relevant for me this week. I'm, I'm going to do uh, a two-day workshop uh, for an institution I've been consulting with for a while uh, this week. And uh, the theme of the conference is reframing internationalization. And when we're talking about what that means is uh, how the, there is a unit uh, that does uh, that has a, kind of an all-in-one international unit that does inbound and outbound international students, English language, as well as uh, uh, study abroad, but also uh, international partnerships. So the uh, theme of this conference is reframing internationalization on campus. And the point of it is to really show uh, that it takes a campus to enroll a class. It takes of international students it, and graduate them successfully into alumni. It takes a campus to promote uh, study abroad and, and embed uh, the concept of internationalization in cu curriculum, in how in faculty exchanges, in students that are in the classroom. So what that looks like. So this is uh, what we'll be talking about during this conference. And it brings me to this question of how do you define your international recruitment strategy? And there are obviously many ways to do this. And uh, three articles in the past week kind of pop in that t touch on this topic from uh, slightly different angles. Uh, we have Scott Jashik in Inside Higher Ed uh, that shares uh, an interview with an author. Uh, Richard Joseph uh, had, has a new book called Bridging the Gap Between the Abundance of American Higher Education Talent and the Immense Foreign Demand for It, The Great Chasm in Global Education. So uh, this is um, really, he, he's a former uh, president of Babson Global, uh, that part of Babson College that was working with education institutions around the world uh, to design curricula, improve educational delivery capacity, that type of thing. So uh, this uh, this, his book really focuses on this uh, great chasm and how institutions can bridge it, the ca chasm between uh, talent uh, and abundance of higher ed talent and of the quality of our institutions and the foreign demand for it uh, is, is that great global chasm. How do we bridge that? How do we meet those needs, uh, that demand uh, through the supply that we have? And this is something I always talk about. I'll be talking about again at our this conference I mentioned uh, we're doing this week on internet reframing internationalization is recognizing that uh, we have in looking at things from a global perspective that the U.S. is one of many institutions, many countries that are actively trying to recruit international students to their institutions of higher education. Uh, we are the number one source, and we have been for decades, uh, and always been the number one source, frankly, for international uh, uh, destination for international students. But that our share of that pie, global student mobility pie, has shrunk from less than a third in 1990 uh, to uh, from more than a third in 1990 to 20% in 2022. So we're looking at, uh, but it's also that pie has gotten a whole lot bigger. So, but our share of that pie, though it has shrunk. We have consistently, up until the pandemic, had only a couple of years uh, where there was negative, negative international student growth. Uh, we had a, a couple down years again because of the pandemic, but I assume that I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that uh, fall 21's data uh, for the 
2021-22 academic year that's just passed will show an, uh, an uptick of international student numbers overall. And this fall, I think, will be a similar increases. But what we're seeing is that pie has gotten bigger. Our share of it has decreased. Uh, and what we have to do to keep up uh, in, in terms of uh, bringing, continuing to bring uh, top talent in uh, needs multi-level, multi multilateral support uh, to happen both on campus and off campus. So it requires institutions to work with their elected officials to have legislation passed that makes it easier for international students to come. It makes uh, international um, organizations and institutions that you partner with uh, on exchanges, on cooperative agreements, on research, on all these collaborative projects to, uh, to broaden the scope of, uh, of, of internationalization and what that looks like on your campus. And those are some of the bigger picture ones that uh, the author really makes the point that it's not just all about bringing students in, more students from overseas in. It's about uh, making it a real um, campus-wide, uh, institution-wide initiative to buy in to, the, to globalization and global education. So that's one, one particular take. It's kind of a real 30,000-foot uh, view. Then you have uh, the folks at Inted that really get into some of the details of what what your uh, what your what your what your strats, your recruitment planning should be driven by. They come up with the formula that they recommend that you you develop access custom research on your differentiators as an institution that make you stand out. That uh, show what your strongest recruitment options are, what countries, regions you need to be in. And, and, and develop the messaging that engages your target audiences on the channels that they are using. That's kind of what they boil down essential recruitment strategies to be. And I certainly agree with that, that it really needs to, uh, that yes, uh, we're the United States, uh, but, uh, and there are certain values then that come along with uh, coming to the United States and all that it represents that need to be part of your marketing strategy. And that's probably a part that not a lot of colleges do uh, emphasize in their international recruitment is from why the United States is a major destination and should be the top destination for students uh, is some of those things that are, that certainly the Inted uh, formula does not focus on, uh, but it certainly, uh, would need, in my opinion, would need to be part of that conversation. But the elements that they're talking about with this, with Inted, certainly need to show how you're different uh, from the competition, not just in the United States, but from uh, institutions and countries around the world that might be, have their own advantages, you need to be sharing how yours are, make you a better option. Uh, so that that's a very kind of opposite view of that kind of 30,000 foot view, it's getting very granular. Uh, but then you have um, the folks at Keystone uh, who have send, uh, shared six trends in recruitment uh, that certainly are all very valid and certainly uh, form a lot of what I talk about with the six P's of uh, strategic international enrollment management, uh, part of what I'll be sharing at this conference uh, tomorrow and Friday, is uh, things like meet the students where they are. Uh, learn how to manage effectively, and that means understanding how, not only your your staff uh, that are enrolled in that are involved in the day-to-day -day doing of international, but also up managing up. How are you uh, informing leadership at your institution of what's going on in the marketplace? How what's changing? How we can adapt? How we need to adapt? And where we might be vulnerable? Where we can shore up the right uh, shore up our re our resources? It, 
the next, they also talk about investing in the right technologies, being aware of what some of those newer tools are that can help give you an advantage, a leg up over the competition, by tracking, uh, having a decent set of analytics that you can re refer to to show how you're funneling students through uh, your admissions process, uh, how what the top of the funnel looks like, how, how what your yield is, all of these types of things, having an understanding of what that is. And that's not a given at, at most campuses, uh, but having that CRM that allows you to get to that point where you can uh, manage your communication effectively, that can give you the analytics you need to show results. Um, it also means getting creative. Uh, it means using other industry data to your advantage to show how, uh, say, labor trends in particular markets are are important to uh, to your de target demographic. The, looking at the push and pull factors uh, that are driving students away from their home countries or uh, pulling them towards the United States, being aware of those things, the bigger picture things that maybe the 30,000 foot view does. So there's some really interesting takes uh, in, on these three levels that uh, I think are well worth including in your mix. Uh, certainly uh, there are some details that are very granular, but there's also some themes throughout this, these three articles that I think are very appropriate and need to be taken on board when you're developing your own international recruitment strategies. So we'll be sharing that out again with the, uh, the conference that I'll be presenting at this week, but uh, we're really looking forward to having more of these conversations with you in the weeks to come, and we really appreciate you being a part of the conversation here on the Midweek Roundup. Have a great rest of your week. And for those of you who are joining in uh, these regularly, I will be at the Education USA Forum in Washington, D.C. next week. We'll be doing a live uh, on Facebook uh, from, uh, from that conference. Looking forward to reconnecting with the regional coordinators as well as uh, advisors from 50 countries at that event, as well as embassy community folks. So until next week uh, from D.C., well, we'll see you then. Cheers.